Amen. What a blessing. Beautiful praising. It's good to be here. Well, if you will, open up your copy of God's Word to James chapter 5. As Adam mentioned, we're at the end of our all-prayer series that we've been going through for the past several weeks. And it seemed fitting to close this out from this end of James's letter, this call to the prayer of faith that heeds the command to pray for one another. I've always found it interesting in the times in which I have preached on prayer or taught on prayer, it's always been a struggle. And I guess that shouldn't really surprise anyone because often prayer itself is a struggle. And as I was looking at this passage this past week in preparation, the struggle really was in the text before us. Because here we are at the end of James's great letter and there's a mountain of truth for four and a half chapters and then we have this massive therefore. Pray for one another. We're called to pray for one another. James calls us to live in connection with one another in Christ, with one another in the local church, to live in harmony with one another, to be a body of living faith, to be a believing people, a forgiving people, a people together in the Lord. Well, true love and true prayer and true forgiveness, they flow from true faith, and that is the response to God's saving grace and the gift of Christ. And it's as, it's, as, it's as if James is saying here at the end that if by God's grace you've been crowned by the crown of Christ Jesus and the gift of God's love, then, then your heart will be so filled with this love that you will be about the glorious act and duty and delight of praying for one another. You know, you've heard from this pulpit so many different times if you've been at Carriage Lane Presbyterian Church for that long that there are the indicatives of the gospel and there are the imperatives. And the indicatives is, are those glorious truths that flow out of God's gift of grace to us in Christ. It's what's God, what God has done for us in the gospel, outside of ourselves, first and foremost, in the gift of Christ and His passion and His ministry. And then what He does in us because of that. He gives us new life. We're born again, we're forgiven, we're justified, and we're adopted. But then there are those gospel commands or the imperatives whereby God is working through us and out of us because of this new life to live a specific way, the imperatives of the gospel. And one of those great imperatives is to pray for one another out of a new heart. And so it's important for us to see the truth of this as we enter in here at the end of James's letter that there is no way, humanly speaking, that anyone can do any of the gospel imperatives without first receiving the gospel grace of God and the gift of a new life and a new heart in Christ Jesus. And perhaps you're here tonight and you've heard the gospel preached again and again and again, but you really don't have a desire to love one another. You really don't have a desire to be hospitable or to forgive one another. Then you really do need to come crying out to Jesus. Lord, give me a new heart, a new life. Take away my sin. 
Make me new. Well, for all of us in Christ, we struggle. We struggle to live out the life of faith and obedience to God. And one of the ways that we neglect the gospel commands is certainly in our prayerlessness. We're quick to pray for ourselves, but slow to pray for one another. So James begins his letter with a call to prayer. For any of you who lack wisdom, let him call upon the Lord, praying for wisdom, and he will give richly. And then here at the end of his letter, he makes a call to prayer, to pray for one another. So let's hear God's word. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. The word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. The word of the Lord, may he fill our hearts with its truth tonight and change us forevermore. Well, when we speak about the essential things of Christianity, don't we often like to caveat them with the word true? We speak of true believers. We speak of true faith, and we speak of true worship. Well, as we approach this command to pray for one another, we're, we're confronted right off the bat with several problems. What is true prayer? What are the necessary conditions for true prayer? Who is it that can truly pray? How do we pray rightly? How do we faithfully pray? What do we pray for as we pray for one another? But why does James feel the need to exhort and command the church to pray? It's important for us to see the, certainly the original context, the original hearers of this word, the situation. The, the overarching theme of the letter is that Christians must live out their faith. They can't simply be hearers of the word. They must be doers of the word as they live out the Christian life within the, the diversity and even the unity of the church in Christ. The church of his day and age is the same as the church of our day and age. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, and believers at every various point of sanctification spectrum in the life of what it means to be in Christ. We're all over the place. And because of this, there's all manner of opportunity for friction and fractures and brokenness in the body of Christ. But but the divine wisdom of God's gospel that empowers the lives of his people will produce gospel peace and joy in Christ. And James is writing very pastorally here. This church is a broad and diverse church. It's scattered all across Palestine and outside of Palestine, North Africa, Syria, around the Mediterranean. It's, it's in what we call modern-day Turkey and Greece. It's a big body all spread out. And James writes 
very pastorally, but very practically. His letter really does take on the characteristics of what we would call a, a handbook for basic Christian living that is the necessary response to God's grace in Christ empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit in living faith. And such a life, even in the midst of fractures and friction, will be lives of prayer for one another. And that's what he's writing about here at the end. Our church is just like these churches of his day and age. As we've already heard, as we've already prayed for, the church is a place of conflict. There's a a great deal of persecution that the church faces today as it did back then. There are all manner of, of fighting and factions, denominational rifts that we see. There's the reality of worldliness in the church. There's the reality of legalism in the church. But yet there's the gospel power and hope. And so James is writing to a community of Christians who have heard the pure word of the gospel, and yet there's the drift in their hearts and practice. More and more, they're just giving lip service to the Lord and His bride, and not life service to the Lord and His bride. So he writes to the church of every age dealing with the tumultuous seas of sin in the broken world and he comes and he exhorts us through the fiery trials of life by the grace of God to pray for one another. So the first thing that we need to see this evening is simply the who. The who of one another praying. Who can truly pray? Who is it that can truly pray. Well, the only ones that can truly pray are those who have been truly prayed for. Think about that. The only ones that can truly pray are those who have been truly prayed for. And who is it that is the only one who's ever truly prayed perfectly? His whole life lived out was a physical expression of his perfect prayers. The Lord Jesus Christ, he prayed as the atoning sacrifice for for the ones whom the Father gave him. We read about this in the most glorious, beautiful, awesome, important prayer in the scriptures, the high priestly prayer. John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, I have sanctified myself that those whom you have given me may be made holy. And all of Jesus' life was one long, glorious prayer prayed out in actions and words and deeds. It was this glorious, holy incense that came up from his holy heart into the holy place of holy heaven before the Holy Father ascending on high. Just think about it. Jesus, in his life, in perfection, lived out all the way to the cross dead and buried and then raised from the dead and then ascended on high. His life came up before the Father as the embodiment of all of His prayers. Perfect prayers. Perfect life. Perfect sacrifice. Perfect intercession. He lived and He died and He was resurrected for for the many given to Him so that we might live in Him and pray too. If He prayed for you, then you can pray. 
Hebrews 10 clearly presents this as we see the glory of what God the Father called Jesus to do and to be for his people. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, by this will. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus prayed for his bride. He lived for his bride that we might be able to live and pray for one another. Just think about it. Jesus talked to his father each and every day. He lived a life of prayer. He was always about the business of of union and communion with the Lord Jesus, with the Father. And he, he enjoyed this special communion. And the one that came from heaven, the Son of God, he kept sending his voice back into heaven. And he prayed specifically for those whom the Father had given. And this is glorious. He prayed for his bride. If you're in Christ, having been born again to a living hope, then, then know that your name has been spoken in heaven, even as it has been spoken on earth in the prayers of your Savior. So did the Father talk to the Son about you before time and space? Did the Son talk about you to the Father while he was here on earth? Well, you know this. If you have a heart filled with love for Jesus, that moves you to confess his name before the world and you love him and you trust in him and you seek him, then you can truly pray because you've been prayed for. He empowers you. And that brings us to our second thought, the command of one another praying. You see right here in James, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. If you have been truly prayed for by the Son of God, then you can truly pray, and he doesn't suggest that we do it. He commands that we do it. We see this. The command right there in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he himself must pray. For you uh, grammar geeks out there, this is a present, middle, singular imperative. Woodenly, it's like this. Christian, are you suffering a trial? Then you yourself must pray right then and right there. The command to pray. In verse 14, is anyone in the church suffering sickness? You know, sickness is a great trial. We'll call for the elders. They must pray for individual believers. And we all must pray for each other. It's a command. It's not a, a suggestion. This is our duty, and yet it should be a delight in the gospel, that we do this, that we're called to do this, that we're enabled to do this, that we have a will to do this. Verse 16, you must pray, I must pray, we all must pray for each other. This shouldn't be burdensome. And unfortunately, it seems to be so very often. You know, praying and praising go hand in hand. Have you noticed that? We sang about it already this evening. And we see it right here in verse 13, the command of the Lord to his people to pray and praise. It's yoked together. But sadly, I've heard some Christians say, well, I just can't carry a tune. My voice is horrible. Nobody wants to hear me praise. So I'll just keep silent during the 
the singing times in worship. I can't hold a tune. How sad. And I've also heard other Christians say, well, I just can't pray like my brothers and sisters in the prayer meeting, but they're so eloquent. Their prayers are so beautiful. Mine are so simple, so plain. So I just won't pray in the prayer meeting. But you see, that's not God's will or command for you or I out of a life of living faith. We're commanded to love the Lord and to pray and to praise. And in Christ, our prayers and our praise, they're beautiful. I mean, can you imagine a a, a child, a, a little boy, not talking to his father because he couldn't talk to his father the way his older brother speaks to his father? No! The Heavenly Father wants to hear our prayers and our praise to commune with Him. And He wants to hear us pray for one another. And when we haven't prayed for one another as we should, we're in sin. Haven't we all done this before? We have been fellowshipping with a brother or sister and we've heard a clear call to prayer, a need for prayer for that brother or sister. And we've said, I'll pray for you. And then a week or two goes by and we see them coming and we're reminded we haven't brought their name upon our lips to the Father yet. It's wrong. The Lord calls us to pray for one another. Let's pray for one another. It's an amazing gift flowing from the gift of redemption. So we've seen the who can pray and we've seen the command to pray. And now, thirdly, we really do need to see the how of one another praying. How do we pray for one another? This is so beautiful, so wonderful what James shows us here. We pray for one another from and through and out of our very real, unique position, our eternal position of righteousness and justification in Christ. That's how we pray. That's what we see in verse 16b. The prayer of a righteous person, a justified person, has great power. You know, we might not feel justified at times, and we might not act like we're justified at times, but if we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, we are justified forever and ever and ever. We stand before the God of the universe, declared dikaiosune, righteous, justified. This is our eternal position. This is who we really are before the Lord. This is what we stand in as we pray for one another. But the reality is here we are living out our temporal experience of, of struggles and trials. So how do we do this day by day? Well, James shows us right here. The command to pray has within its DNA the how to pray. That's what James shows us here. Right here in verses 13 to 18, in these six verses, we find the English word pray seven times. But you see, in the Greek, we find four different words for prayer used eight times. And this is significant. You know, when we read the Bible in the original language of Hebrew and Greek, we see the intensity, we see the pop, we see the color, we see the passion and the heat of the Word of God more clearly. But we need to realize, certainly, as we read our English translations, the faithful ones like the ESV, we do get the general sense of the word. We do get the particular sense of the word. It is the living word of God. 
we receive the truth about the Lord and who we are, who He is, and salvation. But you see, it's so helpful in applying the Word of God to have an understanding of the original. It's like reading the Bible in HD, in technocolor. You know, when you watch an old black and white movie, it's all there. You understand the story, you see the truth of it, but when that same movie has been updated by our friends at Turner Classic Movies, they provide this HD, updated, color version, you get more of the movie. It's better. It's more powerful. It's more intense. And you see right here, we find the English word for prayer used over and over again, and yet in the variety of Greek words, it comes with different colors and shades and intensity, and these different colors, these different shades, they show us and describe for us the activity of praying for one another and how we're to pray for one another. We see it like this. Verse 13 is the, the common verb for to pray. It's prosukamai, general prayer. If a person is suffering, let that person pray for himself, prosukamai. But when we get to verse 16 and the command to pray for one another, it's uksamai, which is a, a prayer of intensity. It's a longing. It's a pleading it's a wishing, it's a, a hoping for kind of prayer. And it's yoked to yet another Greek word for prayer at the end of the verse. You see, that kind of ukamai prayer is deomai prayer. And we're told that it is effective prayer. You see, this intense, longing, pleading prayer is effective as we pray for one another that flows from the heart of a believer, that flows from the heart of the Savior, a heart that's been perfectly loved and perfectly prayed for so that we can pray. When we go to pray for a brother or sister in Christ, we do so with an earnestness, with a desire, with a great eager desire to see something happen, a wishing for, a hoping for, gripped with emotion, Lord, do this for my brother or my sister. That desire, as James shows us here, is one of, of both for healing of a physical nature and a spiritual nature. And that kind of prayer, this uksamai prayer, this intense pleading and longing prayer, it's called effective entreaty prayer. That's powerful. Because we pray from the powerful, eternal position of Christ's righteousness. We can pray passionately with emotion, with an absolute certitude that the Lord will do what He has called us as we pray for these things to do in Christ. As we walk along the rocky road of the Christian life, this is how we're to pray for one another. Don't we see this modeled for us in the Psalms and in the prayers of Paul, the prayers of Peter, don't we see this model for us in the prayers of Jesus, this sort of praying for one another? Not just with the mind and the mouth, but the heart. Well, this brings us to our next thought, the what of one another praying. What do we pray for? James shows us. What do we pray for in our prayers for one another? This text is very specific. We pray for physical and spiritual healing. That's what he shows us in verses 14 to 16. And James gives us some specifics, but certainly this isn't an exhaustive list. But as we live out our Christian lives, 
don't we run up against this each and every day, the need for physical healing for us and others and spiritual healing for us and others? Indeed, we do. Verse 14 tells us, anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders and let them pray over him. So we see right away that we're to pray for one another in our physical illnesses and sickness and the frailties of a broken body. And James is dealing here with something specific, something very clear. This person is facing a health crisis. They're broken. And we see someone who's unable to get up out of the bed and to come into the community of Christ. And so the elders are to go to that person and to pray for them, to pray for their physical healing. And we're told in verse 15, such prayer will bring healing. We see that in God's providential working of that sickness, the believer will be raised up. They'll be healed. And, and James isn't suggesting here some kind of a faith healer, simplistic, name it, claim it thing. No. If the Lord Almighty in heaven so wills to heal the child of faith that's being buoyed up by the prayers of his brothers and sisters, then indeed he will bring it to bear in time for a physically healed body. But the reality is, for every child of the Lord, healing comes in one way or the other. Either being released from a broken body or bring, being brought home or being healed in the moment or the season physically. So let's make sure that we're praying for those who have broken bodies. Let's make sure that we're praying for those who are in hospital or those who are shut-ins. But we also see another what to pray for. And that's the spiritual healing. And this is so important because we live in a community of, of Christ, our little community, our, our families, and our big community, the church, and there's tension and friction because of sin. And we often hurt one another. And we need spiritual healing. And we may be justified by God the Father and Christ in the realm of eternity, but but we live in the here and the now in the temporal life of sanctification and we're a mess. And we hurt one another. We sin against one another. People sin against us. People hurt us. And that's why we're commanded to pray for one another for spiritual healing because we do sin against one another and hurt one another. Well, we must remember that we're justified sinners forgiven in Christ and so too are our brothers and sisters and that's the starting point as we pray for spiritual healing. And part of the gospel-empowered life of true prayer is confession of sin and forgiveness. Do you notice that? It's not the, the prayers of super-duper spiritual elites that are powerful and effective. No, he says the prayers of a righteous man or a just man there in 16b. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So have you been praying for those who have offended you or hurt you or sinned against you? You see, when we confess who we are in Christ Jesus to one another and we're able to confess how we've sinned against one another, that unleashes gospel healing in the Lord so that we're able to do what 
Paul calls us to do in Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, really, the longer your sinful nature prohibits confession and seeking forgiveness from a brother or a sister that you've sinned against, the larger pride looms in your heart and grows And it crowds out the Holy Spirit and the tenderness of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a dangerous place to be. Such a person starts to wither up on the inside, to dry up. And sometimes, God in His mercy and in the mystery of His providence brings a sickness on one of His sheep to bring about a healing, a spiritual healing. And that's what we see here. Because when you start to feel physically sick and the Lord is pressing on you through that, it gets your attention. And you cry out to the Lord. And the first thing that you begin to do is you rehearse the gospel, the reality of who you are before the Lord in Christ. And you rehearse the forgiveness that you have in Jesus and the glory of grace. And then you're enabled to seek out confession and forgiveness with brothers and sisters that you've offended and you rehearse the gospel with them and together you know the peace of Christ and you know restoration and forgiveness you know spiritual healing and physical healing and the Lord is good well it's important to see the connection between physical sickness and spiritual sickness but we need to be clear James says if if He has committed sins there in verse 15. Of course, we know that all sickness is the result of Adam's original sin, but not all sickness is the result of a person's actual sin. But the Lord is good. He brings everything to bear upon our lives for our good and for His glory. And that brings us to our final thought, just a quick moment of reflecting Finally, we see the consequence of one another praying. We see the consequence of this. What should we expect when we pray like this in the Lord? What's the consequence of gospel, one another praying? Well, it's powerful. It flows from the gospel power, which is dynamite. The dynamite of God for the cosmos. It's rooted in the creator. It's rooted in his recreation. Every Christian possesses the righteousness of Christ in their gift of union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Elijah. And we need to see what James is doing here. There are great varieties of gifts to serve the church, right? But there are only a few apostles and prophets. But there are more still that are pastors and teachers. There are those that exhort and those that comfort, those that show hospitality, all manner of spiritual gifts for the body of Christ. But the one that we all share in common is being born again and rooted in Christ, living our lives out of the reality of that glorious justification. And when we read this, we might be tempted to think, well, Elijah, with all of his powerful and famous ministry, Of course, his prayers were answered. He was a super saint. But that's not James's point at all. He's saying he's just like us in the ordinary yet extraordinary gift of righteousness 
in union with Almighty God through Messiah so that we must believe, we must pray with faith and watch God work and the consequence will come upon his people, his church, and our families with power unleashed day after day. The marvels of the gospel, the glory of recreation, the power that we see at work when we do see a, a physical healing that we know is the Lord's work, the power of the gospel and the glory of God when we see a spiritual healing, when sinners come alive to the truth of who God is and who they are and their need and they cry out and they're born again. We see growth and holiness. We see all of these things are the result of power, gospel power, and they come upon gospel prayer. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, what a witness. As we're about the business of all prayer and praying for one another, where we live and where we work and where we play in our homes and in our church and in our community, what a witness. So we must joyfully run in the way of holy prayer in our Savior for one another. Let's go to the table.